1: Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started.
0: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Today I'm talking to Ested Herndon, a star political reporter at the New York Times. I wanted to see what would happen when I said that out loud, <laughs> and he raised his eyebrows.
1: I was looking, yeah, yeah. Ested
0: oh. is too smart and too modest to acknowledge his star status, but an easy way to gauge his fortunes at the Times is that he's got his own podcast which they do not hand out to everyone at the New York Times, covering the 2024 election. It's called The Run-Up. It's awesome. It covers both the big obvious players, people behind the scenes, and crucially, is peppered with the voices of real voters, which we don't hear enough of. I love it, and one of the reasons I had to stay on is so I can fanboy out about the podcast. But before we get to that, let's make a terrible podcasting mistake. Let's talk about something that happened a couple days ago, and by the time this podcast comes out, we'll be like a week old. Uh, this is the DeSantis uh, Twitter yes. launch question mark. Uh, it's now conventional wisdom. This was a terrible thing, terrible mistake. Stead yeah. Herndon, political expert. Does this launch matter? Does this failed launch matter in any way to DeSantis' chances?
1: I would say, I mean, in classic yes or no and no. I think launches are overrated. I cover Kamala Harris's campaign for The Times. Uh, and I remember that 20,000-person rally in uh, Oakland that – I think a vague memory of yes, this which was And Liz the Warren had really rally, big rallies. Which is, I think Harris's was exponentially bigger, but they it was a really scare moment for the other candidates. I think it drives fundraising initially and it drives how you're seen as you're entering the race, but it's not necessarily predictive. And we got a year and a half to go. I think what I think for DeSantis specifically It continues a long slide of bad headlines, though. And so I don't think it's necessarily the launch that's the problem. It's the fact that for the last two to three months, it's been looking like a guy who's been having a lot more trouble on the national stage. than I think folks thought after the midterm. So I think the consistency of it is a problem. But the actual individual launch, it's just a bad look. And I don't also think – I don't get it. Like I don't get why you would see your big day over – to Elon Musk and Twitter and all of that.
0: So I find it more so confounding. It is. It's is curious. Else. Lots of political experts said this was a terrible idea from the get-go. Yeah. I'm assuming that one of the reasons DeSantis thought it would be a good idea is that he read stories about how Twitter was very important mm-hmm. and that Elon Musk was, was turning it towards a, his own version of Fox News and he's the new Murdoch. Curious what your take is on just the importance of social media and politics in general, because we tend to really swing back and forth to this is driving the conversation. This is what's getting people to riot or act badly or act well. And then sometimes we say these are actually not used by that many people, especially Twitter. State of the State 2023. How much does social media matter? How much does Twitter matter?
1: I think when you're thinking about voters we should say it's not driving the priorities of most voters. And the conversation there is completely disconnected from, I think, the conversation about most people intake. So when we say someone's too online... When we say someone's too online, we're just thinking that they are involved in a kind of insidery conversation. On the left or the right. On the left or the right that is disconnected from the priorities of most people. But I don't think it's equal on the left and right. When you think about the right, they have a much more airtight conservative media ecosystem. So when I talk to Trump voters, they sound more similar than when you talk to the broad swath of Democratic voters. And they partly are in a more connected online ecosystem. The Breitbart's, the conservative yeah. sides that feed up to Fox News, that they're all kind of speaking Yeah, I was wondering if you, th-
0: if you think they're getting it because they're going into Breitbart so, or because they're watching Fox News and Fox News is influenced Totally, by but this it, is a filter. Way.
1: And so I remember one of the things I did for to cover the last presidential administration was I joined all these Trump-specific Facebook groups. And so I could see the kind of organic movement of conservatives on the right. And so I think they are. And so I just think In general, when people sound like Ron DeSantis is too online, I don't think it's the same risk as Elizabeth Warren, per se, for... A similar problem because their voters are all in that kind of grievance online who we're mad at today who's our enemy today language whereas democratic voters the broad swath of them are not in that
0: convo so are not in the similar convo on the left my my timeline definitely runs runs lefty mm-hmm. um but i intentionally like follow newt gingrich and stuff, yeah, yeah. so i get some of that stuff piped in and i definitely see like the the critique of oh this is an online conversation no one in the real world cares about x y or z but you do think it's more it's more weighted that that is more weighted on the right
1: yes i don't think it's the same i don't think when people make the same critique of desantis as they do for a democratic candidate we should treat it the same because that republican electorate is in a what i would say online conversation that is filtered through a lot of the ways they get their a lot of ways they get their media so i'm saying like it's just not I think one to one. I do think there's a big disconnect between the grievances of a non-college Republican electorate versus a college Republican electorate. And I would say that DeSantis's grievances are all that kind of elite class. That's all. Um, it's all the kind of wokeism driven through colleges and schools and things like that. And that is certainly a slice. But he's not speaking more so in immigration. He's not speaking more so in some of the priorities that you see for a broader swath of the electorate. So there's definitely a there's definitely a problem, right? But I don't think that. It's good to say, you know, it's kind of reactive from a Democratic primary where the electorate was definitely too online and Joe Biden wasn't. Right. That's what he got to pitch, I think, to a lot of people. But that's because there's a different set of primary voters who I think are playing in a different field than Republicans
0: In, in terms of your work, and, and I've heard you on the, on the Daily a, time, a lot, a lot of knocking on doors now, calling yep. people on the phone, calling. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. assume you're calling registered voters? We're right? calling registered voters through Times polling. So we match,
1: link up with the Upshot to have their data sets and then call people through there. So
0: how do you weigh, um, here's a random voter I found in Iowa yep. versus here's someone saying something online in terms of which one is a real POV? Well, we, and I assume they're both. They're both. They're both yeah, saying it to you. But but how do you sort do we of weigh? How do we choose? This is we take, rep- well, but also we- this is this voice seems representative versus. Yeah. There's a certain. I mean, we do it not just in political Twitter, but all Twitter. All, all reporting just goes. Here's how someone who said something on Twitter. Yeah, I'm gonna pluck, pluck that out. Yeah, and it will now represent. How does it not uh, feel uh,
1: just straw man? Yeah, yeah. I think one, we try to match it up with the kind of data that we're getting larger on that front, so that you're not just hearing people. The last time we used voters was when we we're talking about no labels and centrist and people who dislike both parties. This
0: is in your your in the run up a couple of weeks ago. Excellent episode. Yes, and so one of the
1: things that we're trying to do is make sure that people who we get are people who are who are independent, people who um, I've already matched up data set wise with the frame. We're not just calling random people. And then uh, we wanted to make sure we had a swath of people, not just someone. The first person we called loved Joe Manchin, right? Loved kind of a centrist option of those. This is the woman on a uh, woman. Yeah, a woman who we talking to. And we were like, oh, who would you want to run for president? She was like, oh, someone in between both parties yeah. like Joe Manchin. This is the no labels, perfect Person, right? That's the type of voter they say is all across America. We know that the numbers say that that's not true. That when we look at non voters or people who don't vote or people who don't like both parties, it's for a lot of different reasons. And so one of the things we were making sure we did in those calls is not just get the lady who's the centrist in the middle, but get people who didn't like all of the options, and making sure that's matching up with the data set and numbers I've already told. I,
0: I was going to say this for later, but I remember that lady. Yeah. Uh, and she said, I'm a centrist. I have problems with both sides. But if you listen to what she said, yeah. she didn't say she was a Republican. But she definitely leans Republicans. Yeah. Her problem with Trump was that he gets into trouble. Yeah. Right. And her problem with Biden. But is, she wasn't he's voting a, he's, for he's, Trump. She no, had she, not she, voted she for Republicans. She wasn't. Yeah. But, but if you sort of listen to what she was saying, she wanted someone who had Trump's ideas and politics without getting into so much trouble. That was sort of mm-hmm. what was coming through.
1: I don't know fully, no? though, because okay. I would say that type of person we can talk to. Those are the type of people voting for Mike Pence in the primary mm-hmm. or voting for Nikki Haley in the primary. That wasn't who she is. You know, so she was someone who had voted third party in the last presidential election and had not participated in primaries. I still think that is a, like to me, that's an important distinction, because if we're trying to get Republicans, we should make sure that you are someone who matches up with that set. For that episode, I think it was important for us to have people who were not you know, D or R. And she'd actually follow through on that, yeah. you know, which is different, I think, than I would just say someone who wants Trump without the politics. There's a lot of those Republicans who don't, who
0: exist. What happens when you knock on a door or call someone and say... Instead, I'm from the New York Times and they either see you and they see that you're a black man from the yeah. New York Times or they hear you and maybe they can't identify your race. What's the reaction you get? Is, it, is there a consistent one or, or is it all across the board? Are people, I do not want to talk to you because yeah. you're from the New York Times? I mean, all of that stuff comes up.
1: And so I would say it depends on where I am. It depends on what I'm doing. I would say it. But race always comes up. It will, people will talk to you. Will you know, in the middle of an interview, will be like, well, you know, they call us racist but look at us right now i'm talking that's like a common expression of it i would say that it comes up on uh when i uh, was in bernie sanders rallies right like people would tell me about their civil rights activism unprompted to do their like white liberal guilt box checking i'm saying like it comes up so much in those interactions that i'm very used to negotiating and kind of putting that and my moving past that i don't really th- dwell on it because I don't really dwell on myself in those things. But I would also say is that, you know, the ways I have learned to Get people to be comfortable to talk to people to hear them out when you have to be transparent about what you're doing. It wasn't really driven through politics. It was driven through being a crime reporter at the Globe, being and going to murder scenes and fires and these like disaster situations. Where people are not excited when people to are. where way it was way. It wasn't really about a black person yeah. showing up or even a Globe person. It was just like anybody showing up. And so I'm saying I had this like repetition of going through that, and I think a very which I think is kind of a unique. Or like a media path that's been kind of eroded, I think, increasingly. But like I I was, you know, and so I was like a newspaper disaster person. And so I'm saying by the time I got to ask people That, by the way, is
0: one of the worst things you ever have to do if you follow that path is walk up to someone who's bereaved. Maybe not, yes. whatever. In child
1: some, child just got arrested. Something bad something happened justice. to them. Someone died. Like, the worst day of your life things. And so I remember I would— And you would come
0: up and say, can I talk to you? Yeah, yeah. and I
1: remember I would sit in the car, trying to get, like, kind of emotionally set. I would, like, make sure I was transparent about what I was doing. I had all these, like, strategies to make it happen. And so I'm saying, like, now asking people about elections and the kind of thorniness of Trump politics or race or identity— I'm saying all of that grew out of that. And it was really, you know, those communities that prepared me to deal with Trump voters. And like and so I feel like I oftentimes like to bring that up because I don't want it to be that like it's just Trump voters with this is complicated or it's just Trump voters who have a tough time talking to The New York Times. You know, I remember being in Detroit and trying to get people to talk about that Rashida Tlaib primary. And those, you know, those communities didn't want to, you know, why were you here? Why
0: were you never here? Like, blah, 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 you know?
1: So I'm saying I have, that comes up in a lot of different places. I think that's part of the
0: media challenge. I want to talk to you more about the podcast and your reporting history. Let's, let's go back to the present mm-hmm. and slash future. So again, the conventional wisdom is DeSantis was on the ascent; he was yeah. a real challenger to Trump. And then uh, the last few months, he's been slipping and slipping. And 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 this launch is part of that narrative. So now the conventional wisdom is he's not going to challenge Trump. There's probably not really going to be any point to the primaries; yeah. it'll all be over. You argued, no, no, don't hold hold off on that. Yeah. So one argument is. You never know, and we've seen that in the past where things that seemed conventional wisdom yeah. were turned out not to be true. Beyond the fact that you never know it could happen, what is the best case for saying, no, next year's primaries could be meaningful, Trump could really face a real challenge, given the landscape that we're looking at today?
1: There is a legitimate plurality of Republicans, almost majority of Republicans, who do not want Donald Trump to be the next nominee, who want another option. And so that's just the fact. And so as long as his ceiling remains forty. as long as the ceiling remains 40-ish percent, then I don't think that door should be closed. Now, does Ron DeSantis look less capable of fulfilling that than he did three months ago? Absolutely. What I'm saying is that space existence means another person can show up, one of these candidates with independent money could rise. that, you know considering Trump and legal challenges. You know, I just think that there are, with that space existing, plus the level of dynamic things in the race, I just don't think it's worth closing. But I think people are reacting to very real information, which is that the post midterms version of Ron DeSantis could not last. And there is a much higher hill to climb to overtake Donald Trump than expected because the assumption that he would fade away was a really bad one. Yeah, that that was was mostly wish casting. That was just across the political spectrum. And I think that was a lot of people right after midterms who were eager to think that something had moved on and have consistently made that mistake. And I think that assumption uh, fueled a little bit of the DeSantis hype machine that I think is just coming back down to earth, which, which, which which would always have been a difficult task.
0: If the conventional wisdom holds, and it's often right, and we get to early next year and there really is not a competitive race for the Republican nomination and Joe Biden which is going to be the Democrat. What are you going to do? How, how does that affect – and we just have basically nine months of sort of kind of replaying the 2020 election and it's kind of hard to imagine what the twists and turns are going to be, right? Um, mm-hmm. what, what do you do as a political reporter then if it sort of seems like, all right, it's kind of laid out? Oh, I think if we get a Trump Biden rematch, this and, be- and one that you know you're gonna have basically nine months out. nine, nine, ten months early. I think this becomes a story about
1: the country who overwhelmingly would hate that reality. And overwhelmingly I think would be dealing with a political disconnect from system that I think would make me less interested. And the twists and turns of the individual candidates, even though that matters. But, and I think what calls, I think from a political reporting ex- perspective, that story about how the kind of uh, despair I think people would feel about that reality, I think we would have a responsibility to highlight that story more. And I think that's part of the reason I think our show has tried to include those voices, is because more than any of the electoral results, we have a growing storyline about people feeling more and more nihilistic politically. I think we have to couple. And I think if it's a Biden and Trump rematch, all signs point to
0: that becoming even more so. Normally, every election cycle, someone comes out and I'll talk to them and they'll say, we need to move away from horse race coverage, yeah. and covering things the same way. And then we inevitably do horse race coverage because yeah. that's actually what people care about. Mm-hmm. A lot of people care about is who's going to win. 2020 scrambles that, right, in some ways. Yeah. It's a whole it's a different book. What what did what did political media learn from 2020 what should they have learned and and how do those lessons get applied or not applied this time around Well I
1: can say what I learned <laughs> I mean I think that there is a space that Trump opened up that brought new people into the process that reshaped the parties that really switched where the power centers were in politics And I think that it is a responsibility in these elections to make sure we are covering things with that new information in mind, which means we're not just listening to the candidates. We're not just listening to the campaigns. We're not just listening to the consultants, that we are also listening to the possibility that people are going to completely break from that and that how, and trying to find kind of creative ways to test that, because if you would have followed that conventional wisdom in the midterms, you would have been wrong. If you followed the wisdom in 2020, you would have been wrong. These are not, these are, we're having too many of these proof mm-hmm. points to return back to the same model. And so for me, it's the reason to try, it was kind of the impetus for doing something like this is because I felt, where was I doing the work that I felt most nuanced about? Where was I doing the the things that I felt like were going to be? Um, and in and, and audio, I think there's a willingness to hear people out that I could not get you to listen, that could not get you to read. I think there's a willingness to explore kind of challenging topics that people would not deal with otherwise. And so I was doing these kind of individual audio episodes when I was on the road and uh, thinking how, thinking, you know, can we create a space that is more, where people are more willing to deal with the stakes of the election and not in a specifically horse race way. One of the things I really like about our last season heading into the midterms is that it's not really about who's going to win and that you deal with the reality that the election's going to be about democracy, about extremism, about how did we get here, about who, who people are judging. But we're not doing that through the lens of typical who's up and who's down. So by the time the results come, I think we're prepared to understand the results and understand that trump is not going to be uh kicked out overnight i think you understand that from there but you don't have to know who's going to win and i think that's a and then i think that's a model of thing that for me was also important to do partly because of this question i didn't want to be in the same iowa gym writing the same story and complaining on twitter saying the same thing i wanted to try to do something different
0: it's funny because whenever i see a voter interviewed in a standard story i'm like yeah, either you know it's the it's the thing we all make fun of. It's the diner story, yep. right with the regular yep. people, and they probably aren't regular yep. people or you go to you go to a, a a caucus. And so, of course, you're talking to a very particular kind of person that yep. shows up to a caucus. So these aren't regular people, and yeah. I just dismiss it right away. In your podcast, I've got just so much time to hear regular people, yeah. working through stuff. And again, I can I'm trying to figure out what they really think versus mm-hmm. what they say. Why do you think that format is so much more conducive? Well, one, I think we are getting more regular people, right? With polling, with us calling. It isn't people. just random. You it guys are you are coming. using yeah. science, and
1: we're also just not getting people who come to events, mm-hmm. right? But also, I just think there is, you know, we ask a couple of good. I always ask like, what's what are the what informed you politically? We hear what brings people to a point, and I think we're not just dealing in the you know this is times on the road when you have to pick a quote from a voter and you have to use the thing that is the most news-hingy, right? I have to do why you end up backing X person, or, you know, your top priority for reasons. But there were so many other things in that conversation that fall out of that story that I remember that not feeling like the whole kind of justifications that I was having these conversations with these people with. So it's I think just the it's podcast. Space. But it's space. And podcasts, it's, you hear yeah. that. I think that creates a, a greater connection with the person. You're more willing to hear how they got to that point. And I think we're also pushing them. And so I think that has to happen too. But, you know, it's not just that. You know, we interviewed Mike Lindell, right? Like there's no way that – if I do a magazine profile of him, that can't work.
0: What you can do – You can't is, just run a transcript of Mike Lindell. First of all, it will go on forever. Right, exactly. Second of all, it will just be crazy. But rants. we have
1: to retain, I think, the reporting framing power that audio gives you. I think you also – we thought really clearly about what we wanted to do with him. We think we did that in it and then we also paired him – after that, with RNC chair Ronnie McDaniel to make it a clear story about not just this individual guy, but this guy and his relationship to power. Those are all choices that I think you can make. And I remember one time going to this kind of extreme Trump event for the Times to do a story. And there was a question about whether we wanted TV cameras to come with. And I remember being like, no, that changes my ability to
0: then he's not talking to you He's talking. they're not to the camera. talking to me they're yeah.
1: talking to the camera and also i can't I have to deal differently with this interview it just and i just think you have to be honest with yourself about who you're talking to and what you want from there and make sure you're not kind of seeding that uh framing power
0: you're leading me off my outline but that's good it's uh, these are questions i had for you for later that lindell interview is great because uh, you let him rant you <laughs> let him do his thing but but it's not hours of it, right? Yeah. It's a, you get a good sense of it. And then you do a thing I notice in a lot of your interviews where I'm like, and I, have, I hear this whenever I listen to anyone doing an interview, I'm like, oh, I wish that person should ask about this or they should follow up on yeah. that. And for you, I can, and I imagine, I have a parasocial relationship, with you, <laughs> that that there's a bunch of questions where someone says something that's obviously wrong or you don't agree with it or it's not supported by facts. And a lot of times you just go, I can't do, I can't, imitate you properly, but you basically go, uh-huh. <laughs> and then ask another question. And then sometimes you go, no, that's not correct. Let me push back. I have facts. I'm going to push you a little yeah. bit. And with Mike Lindell in particular, right, that would, I don't, I don't know how you gauge when you're going to push back on him versus like let yeah. him rant. But in general, how do you think about saying, no, sir, no, ma'am, what you said is not true. I'm going to correct yeah. that or ask you to explain it some more versus, all right it's just some bullshit and i'm going to let you say it.
1: We have an idea of where we want to go. And then i basically also go places within that in an interview. And i try to make sure that people are heard clearly before i am refuting or or kind of going back and forth. And so for me is if i feel like you are not answering honestly, that's when i'm going to try to bring something up or to push directly. But if I am asking and you are laying it out clearly, I will move. I will largely move on or just, like, make sure it's clocked or I don't know if it's a subconscious or like a or like a. All right. So are you saying this? Is that what I hear? And then we can do that. And then we can go for. It's interesting, though, because I think one of the things about doing this is people really hear your process. Right. It definitely like changes. You know, I'm talking about the power of retaining framing in a story. You also have to execute live a lot more because in the story, I could call you back, I could make sure I did something later, I could hear something mm-hmm. to kind of follow up and clarify. And in these moments, you have to do this. And so there will be times when I am just listening, and then I will look at the clock and be like, "Oh, I need to, I need to get somewhere here." <laughs> uh, and, th- and I think all of those are just kind of felt out in the moment. But the good thing is that we have a set idea about where we're trying to build to. So I have a place in mind. And then we have, like, a kind of team that's talking in real time. And then I am in, like—and I'm someone who's going to, like, you know, follow something if I just do you hear— have, Do you have
0: someone in your ear? Do you have a, a producer in your ear? We have—we
1: have, um, at, we have a, in the script— we will be talking as a team. And so- someone, So you're talking
0: to Mike Lindell and and you can see comments? So the not producer. one Mike
1: Lindell one, because that one was an in-person yeah. one. But a lot of times when it's in Zoom or something like that, we can be able, like, I will hear, you know, someone be like, go skip this question. Or do we need to go back? Or not always, because you're also, because the t- t- tough part is, you got to listen. I mean, I think that the most important part, and I remember saying this early, was like, I have to listen and so you don't want to be reading the whole time because that's i think the best follow-up questions are coming when you're really actively listening and so i'm basically checking in and making sure i'm following a script and taking suggestions and i do take suggestions for sure it's a team effort but like you also have to listen and ask because that's definitely we're gonna big payoff.
0: we'll be right back after a word from a sponsor and we're back when did you come to the times what year 2018. And and when did you start becoming a podcast guy? Uh last year.
1: Last year. So I was I was 28. I did the Daily guest hosting. I so was the Daily
0: up- the Daily was a big deal when you got there, right? Cuz it launched with a bang 2017. Yes. The it was daily already was a, big a deal thing when I got there. Yeah. And was that a thought like, "Oh, I'd like to that Absolutely sounds not. <laughs> I want to be involved <laughs> in that." No. no. No, no.
1: I had no audio like tingles at that no time. No aspirations. No. I was doing the paper. I really loved it. And I Had a great time. I did the 2018 midterms, and then it was presidential. I covered Warren and then Harris, and then I was on both candidates. But I was doing these kind of road enterprise stories. And so actually the first story I remember doing with The Daily— You're on
0: the road and trying to figure out something that's independent from whatever the news of the day is. Right.
1: It's not the news of the day, but trying to find a theme that means something, that speaks to a broader kind of political concept. And uh, so—but I remember the first time I did The Daily was I had pitched this story about— Um, the different music of all of the candidates in the 2020 Democratic primary and how you can tell, like, you know, who they're kind of trying to reach by the music playlist of the different candidates. So I got the candidates to all give us playlists, and then we did this, like, visual thing about there. And then The Daily reached out, and I did this Daily episode. And I was like, you know, it was so cool. You know, people from high school reach out. You know, like, it's like no one cares about, like, a story in the Mm -hmm. paper. But, like, you know, The Daily was like you had made it. At the times, and uh, and then I did a set of field stories with them leading into the twenty twenty primary, where we reported from Iowa. Yep, I remember. We reported from South Carolina. I did one from Minnesota about uh, about the back and forth of the city council about defunding police, and those were right real time when I was like, "Oh, I'm feeling like in this medium, I am telling a really nuanced story, and I'm really liking the fact that like you're taking this journey is happening." And so I was doing a print story, and then working with the producer to produce those, to, to kind of complete those. And with was, that was my real experience that got me thinking about things. I think lead up to
0: the run up. And so now you got this prestigious pod. Do you raise your hand for that and say, "I'd like to stop typing up words. I like to do audio only." <laughs> How does that happen?
1: I don't think it's a straight line. You know, I was I was basically guest hosting the daily, and it was a kind of moment where I think Times Audio was thinking about where those pieces fit and I was kind of raising my hand to be like I want to make a switch and I think we went through kind of different ways that that could happen and but I really like they were really open to the idea of trying something different and uh, I think that was largely because I had been doing stories that had li- really lent itself to that. I was pitching an idea of translating stories and I had worked a lot with audio previously, you know. And so I think the idea, we you know, we, I don't think we clearly knew where it was going when we started. But I think there was a sense of like trust in both times audio and to me to kind of find at least something that could speak through the midterms. And then as I think we were doing it, it was feeling better and better each time. And I knew... I knew it was, I knew the medium was one that suited how I viewed politics, that in the language of accessibility, the language that feels unique to people, the language that does not feel like horse racy stuff. And so I knew that audio and kind of how I was viewing reporting could be a good match. But I think we still had to see that work. And that's like, last year really helped with that. I think we got big plans for going forward.
0: I'm I'm glad you're doing it. Does it, did it feel like a risk? Does it feel like a risk? Because you're doing this cool thing and it, it links up with, I think, what? A lot of people are interested. What you're interested in, yeah. but it also means you're not going to have an A1 byline. Oh, for sure. Um, and for a lot of people in the times, I'm like, yeah, well, outside the times, that's still what matters. Is the, the 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 person whose name is on top of the New York Times is the one who's doing the biggest, most important work.
1: Yeah, I had to break myself of that. I did not. That was I think one like I've always enjoyed when I was on the when I was on the paper when I was on the politics team on the paper side and writing stories. I always enjoyed leveraging the other parts of the Times. I was doing audio, but I also did the Times te- television show, the weekly on FX when they had it. I had done all these visual stories. I liked the other, the stretching of storytelling. I actually found, I think it was the unique part about working there. And I also think it was very clear to me that I was stretching the same journalistic muscles, but it was having li- different levels of impact and accessibility. And so I became a reporter became more excited about telling the stories that I wanted to do in whatever way they they were being done rather than being a kind of front page driven. Not to say, you know, we love the the front What's the
0: downside of not having that A1 byline? I think there's a
1: permanence of ideas in the paper that is not the same. Like, with the audio. Like, it hits different. I mean, it it does. I would say just like DC, like, you know, or like political figures or like, you know, I'm, know, I'm, I'm, I'm like... There's people, I think, who are like, what are you
0: doing? Does it matter for access when you say, I'm I'm doing the thing? I mean, they it's don't the New York know. Times. They yeah, know what that is. Like,
1: but. but the Daily's obviously done so much work on that front that people know that. But I'm saying, like, trying to do original stories in a audio form in a national election is not really... Like a modeled thing, and so we're trying. What we're trying to do is pitch people on this idea that you know we're this actually a, a space where you have more time to talk. There's actually a place where you yeah. get your ideas out there in a different type of way. But I think it also took me thinking that following that same kind of nose to say I want to be where the stories I want to tell are, and if that's audio, I want to do it in audio. If that's paper, I want to do it in paper. If that's whatever, and so I think I miss writing too. Like I'm gonna like. I mean, I write for this show, but I'm saying like are thinking about ways to try to do, like, you know, stretch some writing muscles. Mm-hmm. But but I haven't missed it in that way because I feel like we are doing, like, journalism. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, so I'm like, people are like, oh, do you miss the paper? I'm like, no, I think I'm I think we're really modeling s- the paper. The I, I, I agree,
0: <laughs> although I continually have that debate with people I work with. And for you've had a really fast ascent. You you grew up uh, outside of Chicago. Mm-hmm. You went to school in Marquette, and, uh, Milwaukee. It's yeah, I in Wisconsin shirt for you today. Um so I appreciate that. And I was I was checking up on your past. It did not sound like you wanted to go into journalism. It did not yeah. sound like you had aspirations for the Times. Here you are. Yeah. And from what I can tell, you went from basically Milwaukee to Boston to the times. That's very fast. <laughs> yeah, I went from Milwaukee to
1: uh I got a internship at the Globe right after after school, which by the way, that's a hard thing to get. Yeah, yeah, I got I remember applying to like 20 internships out of uh, trying to get out of college, I'm pretty sure I only got one. Well, <laughs> like, that's
0: one more than me. Yeah, that's so. I'm saying. Like, it was and almost, there were more newspapers around back then.
1: They were. And so I was, like, really excited. I loved the Globe. And uh, I went there that summer. Basically, not knowing what I was going to do after and, the and summer. And had
0: you written newspaper stories prior to that?
1: So I was a—so in college, I took a year off of school and taught kids. And then when I came out, came back to school, I got an education reporting internship at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I was a stringer there. And so I did the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel internship. Then— After that, I had interned at CNN and was a digital intern there. And so those were things I was doing. You seem like
0: really – like you just went from someone who did not have aspirations to journalism. All of a sudden, you're interning at the Journal Sentinel, which is a big, big regional paper. You get to CNN. Did it feel like it was easy? No. I would say
1: like all of those things – one, like – I was broke. <laughs> so I can't feel like it was easy when, like, all of those things were minimum wage jobs and, like, I was, like, trying to figure it out. I mean, I remember... I didn't, I wasn't... And I wasn't sure about journalism. I did not like journalism in school. And so in my head, I was doing, like... I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I really liked the paper. I really liked the journal Sentinel. And it was because I had this experience of working in a school that they took me on as an intern. And it was a really great, I feel like, Newsroom experience. I didn't. I shouldn't say this. I mean, I'm still a CNN political analyst, but I didn't love my internship at CNN. Uh, (laughs) Different, different different regime, different management. (laughs) It made me realize I was a newspaper reporter. That like I, I wanted. I didn't want to. I, I wanted to be turning things around. I wanted to be out talking to people, whatever. So I would say like, I knew I could write. I knew I could talk to people. But journalism really rewarded kind of like outside the box thinking. And I feel like that was something that didn't wasn't clear to me until I actually started working in newsrooms rather than in school when it felt like they were really saying that is not who you could be, right? I was in, you know, I feel like I was still in a journalism college collegiately where it was like, you shouldn't care about anything. And like, you know, objectivity requires you saying nothing in stories. And so... I never, I was like, that sounds horrible. <laughs> that sounds like a job and then I you don't enter, want. And then
0: you go to work for the Journal Sentinel, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, and you find that's not the case and you have much more I don't more think that you.
1: that's the type of journalism I do. I yeah. don't think that that's the. But
0: that you have the capacity, that, that you have the ability to do that. I um, think that
1: all of those places have rewarded the reporting that I do. And I'm saying that means to me that it is not a institutional choice to do that stuff, but sometimes a reporters who are not thinking about how you can frame things in other ways. And so what I have always put the onus on myself and I've all and I've pushed those institutions too to try to think differently about not just objectivity being the midpoint of both parties. But and I don't think that's where we are anymore, frankly. I think that there is a I think there's been a shift in the type of stories that you see at places like that that have accommodated people like me.
0: Yeah. All right. I keep, I keep, I keep, I keep jumping on my, my, uh, my structure here. But I'll ask you about objectivity. Yeah. There, you know, there still is, by the way. And we're seeing more. or oh, you're seeing people talk about it more now, as they're, you know, yeah. launching the messenger and trying yes, to reorient yes, yes. CNN. That yeah. objectivity matters. That you've got to hear from both sides. This is a traditional, uh-huh. traditional sort of journalism one hundred one mindset that existed in newsrooms of all sorts for yeah. a long time. Len Downey from the Washington Post famously bragged about never voting because he didn't want that to cloud his. Yes, hundred percent. And then that's really been criticized for for many years, but really much more vocally the last few years. Yes. You're one of the people who makes that criticism. Yes. Have you always felt that way? And 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 did you feel any trepidation about saying that, given that you're working for the New York Times, incredibly scrutinized yes. newspaper? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then and so what's the reaction outside the Times and inside the Times when you say stuff like that?
1: Well. I would say that that is it, it is it has always been clear to me that I didn't want to just be a journalist. I wanted to do, be a journalist that was saying things that I believed, that was doing reporting that I think was actually contextualizing and cutting through noise and not just you know stenography. And so that was always informed for me, not as someone that's pre. I mean, I mean, I'm a child, but that's still pre-Trump. You know, that wasn't informed by Donald Trump that was informed for me for like a legacy of what were my black journal heroes who I felt like were clear-eyed about things.
0: Who were like, some of those folks?
1: Think like the Chicago, Ida B. Wells, like people who were like clear-eyed about lynchings or civil rights movements or things that have, uh, you know, mainstream media was missing at that time too. And so I never found that to be a controversial thing to say because I thought that was the history of American media, right? So I thought that. So I was dealing in that and I would say that What I have, my experience has always been when I have taken that to the Boston Globe or to the New York Times, they have been like, do the story then, you know? And that is something I can work with. If you're, if if I, if I, I have been empowered to go to You know, Trump stock and uh, and also to black communities and tell those stories. I did all stories through 2020 from South Side of Chicago, from George Floyd's Memorial, from I think we covered black voter electorates in unique ways last cycle. And nobody talks about that. They talk about how I talk to Trump voters. I'm really proud of the ways we've actually done that largely. All I'm saying is I don't think those institutions I don't think I'm not, not. It's not me flattening the real kind of open fights that we've had about this stuff. All I'm saying is if you think, take the Times, if you read A.G.'s big note from a couple weeks ago, I think it's A.G. Salzberger, your yeah, publisher. Yeah, A.G. Salzberger, the publisher of the Times. I think there's a clear recognition that the conversations that these, like, objectivity have shifted over the last... And we're not going to go back to a world where we're just trying to do that. But it matters to us to follow through. For us, we have a tough time with this sometimes.
0: So he put out a note saying this is sort of how we're thinking about objectivity." object. He, a lot of things, but this is one of our yeah. ideas. But I hear a lot from people at the time saying, you know, stated and unstated, there's an idea that, that both our coverage that people see needs to sort of not swing back to the middle, but, mm-hmm. but be less obvious. You shouldn't be able to read it and go, oh, that person's a New York Upper West Side liberal. Uh, who wrote that piece? And, and that, and, and maybe these two things are conflated. That we there's just a lot less tolerance for any kind of Twitter fights amongst ourselves w- with other people. Definitely no tearing people down on Slack, and that stuff doesn't necessarily go over well. Yeah, but I mean, like,
1: one, like, that's just workplace. Like, I don't know if that stuff was good. <laughs> you know, like, it's not clear to me that that stuff was good. Like, I I'm someone who has a Twitter following, right? Has always tweeted a lot. Like, I remember the first thing the Times said to me about tweets was stop tweeting away
0: stories uh-huh.
1: that you should write. And that was great advice.
0: Uh-huh. Why was I... Spell, spell that out, because you hear... I heard it yesterday. Uh, why was it's, I... It's, it's something you hear a lot. Trying to is... win
1: some argument... With, or why was I going if you have back a really and forth good insight with some insight when I should be putting that in a paper, actually reaching people, and actually, actually, jo- doing journalism? And like that to me was great advice. And so all I'm saying is like there has always. Twitter has to me always mattered as a place to have a conversation with other media. I think we have pushed things like, you know, ideas on objectivity or to me, it's a water cooler of media. It's a place I've talked to friends. It's a place I watch soccer and watch basketball and whatever. But has it been a place to help me succeed in journalism? Has it been a place that has made journal my journalism better? Like, eh. And I think that that's true in terms of ideas and reading other stuff, but also sinks stuff down too so I don't think it's inherent to me that that the way we were existing on Twitter in that time and this is me yeah. like saying this it's not clear to me that that was good all I'm saying is like I think my work has always been kind of distinct from that and I'm saying I think what we are hearing institutionally and hearing broadly is like is don't die for the tweets and I don't think that's a good message. I yeah. think it's a I think uh, that's I want to come back to for.
0: objectivity. I mean, I'm fascinated by Twitter. You said you had uh, Twitter in high school. I'm so thankful I never had social media. Yeah. Did you yeah, have to scrub yeah, it before yeah, you went to the Times? Because that was well oh, that into was the... way before I had but done that...
1: like five scrubs. Oh, so spend. you've done it. OK, so I'm saying like I was in high school. And so I'm saying so you went and said no one needs to see these anymore. I'm going to delete. All well, I think I had a private Twitter. I'm pretty sure it was a private Twitter yeah. in high school. And it wasn't like I don't yeah, no, I don't re- completely remember I said, but it was just high, exactly. school. In high school. Like, you know, and I'm saying... But you, you by came by, to the
0: times in an era where people were going over hundred percent. I'm saying
1: by the time I went to college yeah. and was trying to get an internship, those tweets were gone. Yeah. And so all I'm saying is I've had Twitter in each iteration and I remember trying to feel... And I remember feeling important that you could be yourself and be a good journalist at the same time and that I wanted to be myself and also did not feel that who I am was at odds in any way with being a good reporter. And so in Twitter, that's how it always felt. And so all I'm saying is, like, I also think, though, that 2016 and changed everything. And I think we're not—and so I'm seeing even in the iterations of Twitter I've had, I feel like I remember pre-2016 and feeling like, you know— some stuff is off the rails. When, when, <laughs> when, El, when Elon
0: bought uh, Twitter last fall, there was kind of a, uh, uh, there was a, here, let me just finish this idea because I wanted to turn it into yeah. a question for you. Uh, you know, basically a lot of people in, in that I work with and, and also online were basically having a wake for Twitter and saying this yeah, is a yeah. real bummer. I'm like, it is, but, you know, we all got to move on because it's not coming back and yeah. it really isn't. And some of the pushback I got was, they weren't exactly saying this, but this is my interpretation: was that's fine for you because you're established in your career, you don't need Twitter anymore to yeah, help yeah, you. with like yeah, Did Twitter help you? Did Twitter? Yeah, did Twitter? I'll say help two things. You? To this one,
1: I would like to say that in 2021, at the New York Times summer like team cookout, I made a prediction that Twitter was toast. <laughs> that's pre Elon. Good job. All I'm saying is like Elon didn't kill Twitter. Like it was dying before that. He accelerated. Yeah, he yeah, did. he pushed he it. He is. He is pushed it off of that, yeah. but it was dying before that. And I don't think dying. I think really returning to a different form. I think a tyrant returning to a feels to me like that pre twenty sixteen pre kind of top down news dominated Twitter. Anyway, it helps and it hurt. It helped in that it definitely boosts visibility. I think that there are hiring managers that are making choices via tweets. I think it helps you push your stories. They're not
0: hiring because of a tweet, but they're gonna See you're you. gonna be on a yep. radar.
1: Yep. I think it helps push stories. I think it helps. Make people think that you're like smart and insightful and that helps people read your stories. I think all of those things are true.
0: What do you, what do you tell a, a, a young Estad who's coming up in a world where that Twitter doesn't exist and there's no real... But all
1: I'm saying, the second half of that, is that was happening for me at the time I was writing good crime stories that nobody on Twitter was reading. That was happening as I was writing good city council stories that nobody was reading. And so I'm saying you have to learn how to be a good journalist and that's completely distinct from Twitter. That is a completely separate process. And the problem for those young people that I tell them is they are thinking about one side of that process yep. and not thinking about the second. So answer. let's
0: say they're smart. And they go, oh, Stead says I should be a good journalist. I'm going to do that. But now Twitter doesn't have that same ladder effect. Can't It probably doesn't work the same way. Uh, what do you tell a young journalist who's writing awesome crime stories that Twitter isn't reading that, that is going to – how do you get noticed? I don't, I mean,
1: I don't, there's other platforms to get yeah. to know this. Find some, like, be the TikToker, be the Twitcher, be a YouTube. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't have any idea, but I think there's other interests that's... So- Twitter is not where the people that you need as a young journalist are. I mean, they are in terms of bosses. So I would say I would tweet for the purposes of like those same reasons I identify. But if you're trying to get noticed in a unique way, I don't think that's happening on Twitter right now. I, I
0: did not plan to spend so much time talking about Twitter. Let's 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 end with religion. I would
1: encourage, I would actually encourage people. I think there is like, how people have failed to translate journalism to like TikTok and all those other platforms will be a nut that some people are, will crack. Yeah, yeah. Some young person will be at some establishment institution and still be able to like make their like TikTok work. And they like I just saw do, the publisher
0: of the Atlantic trying out TikTok. Like,
1: yeah, I'm saying somebody's going to try. Someone's going to do it.
0: We're, we'll end with religion because that's always a fun place to end. <laughs> I remember listening to this in the moment and then I went back and re listened to it this morning before I talked to you. There's a, you did an episode last fall about evangelicals yeah. and Trump, and it's really good. And along the lines, you, you'd say, you know, I was raised in an evangelical household.
1: Yeah, my father's a pastor.
0: Did you have any, any, did that, you pause it all before you said, I'm going to describe my my upbringing, my religious. No.
1: No. I've done a story about my dad's church yeah. at the Globe. I did a story, the first story I wrote um, when Trump was getting inaugurated was about my dad's church who had had a, who had held a uh, inauguration ball for Obama in 08, where all these old black folks dressed up for, like, you know, the South Chicago. Like, we wanted to be at the inauguration, even though you couldn't be there. And then I did the story about how scared and, like, sad everyone felt and, like, fr- fearful about what Trump's election meant. And so, like, I've always felt that those parts of me are not things I'm running from or are also core parts to understanding how I view reporting and politics. And, like, and so... I don't. I don't have a fear of pausing, for that because, um, I don't know. I think that episode only happens because of that. You know, like we. I think if you talk about blind spots in mainstream media, evangelical is huge one. Mm-hmm. you know religion is a huge one. Right. So
0: you interview that episode I'm talking about. It's you interviewing a religion reporter who, by the way, his name I can't remember. That's Ruth Graham, part. who had gone the week
1: like. With my and so I'm saying me but are, like I
0: don't see her coverage on a one a lot. Her
1: coverage is on a one. Okay. But I would say my that apologies. Like, <laughs> I would say that like just that the Times has two good religion partners, Ruth and Elizabeth Dias. I would say that itself is more religion energy. Also, we take up too much of the system, right? Like in the healthier media environment, this is spread across a lot of places. But I'm saying we need more religion and politics coverage. And so one of the things I was trying to do there is based in that knowledge that. What's when I look at Trump, when I look at understanding, you know, so we get so much credit on our show for like helping folks understand Trump stuff. And I'm like, why is that unique? Let's think about why that what, what has led that to being unique. Have you known enough evangelicals? Have you know, do you understand non-college folks? Do you understand, you know, white working class people like people talk about Wisconsin Dads like they're from Mars in D.C. and these are people I've known my whole life, right? These are people who I who are who like I've been to Walkersville not for not for journalism, but when I was in college, you know. And so I'm saying for me, all of those things add up to it. And so I'm not gonna like I'm not about to run from the religion part or from my parents or in the same way I'm not gonna run from race. The same way I'm not gonna run from, you know. And so I'm like. All that matters to me is that I land on being a reporter that feels fair, and even if you know what's informing it.
0: I did not begin this interview hoping we'd get the word Waukesha into this, <laughs> and I'm glad we did. Shout out to my freshman year roommate, who's also named Peter, but we called him Wally. Ah, Waukesha. From, from Waukesha. Great Molly. Did you go there? Did you go to Madison? I did. I oh, did, yeah. wow! So I met a guy there from Waukesha. Go. So there we go. Much but, cooler than Marquette. When
1: I say if I could, if I could, I mean. I love it. Was it was?
0: I enjoyed my time. Yeah, That's what I was <laughs> um, and I remember some of it. Uh, Stead Herndon great to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for, you for having coming me. on. This is so fun. That was fun. Thanks again to Sted Herndon for coming into the studio to talk to me face to face. Thanks to Travis and Jelani for recording and editing and producing this show. Our advertisers, who bring this show to you for free, and you guys for listening. I think we've been on a pretty good run recently, and I'm getting great feedback from you guys. You really like the AI episodes. Um, That was fun to hear. Um, We'll make more for you. This is Recode Media. See you soon.